So let's give a welcome to Pastor Phil Capuccio. Father, we come before you this morning in the wonderful name of Jesus. And Lord, what a joy to be together. What an honor to just come together with the saints here at this house. And Lord, we avail ourselves now to the teacher who is the Holy Spirit. You said that you would not leave us comfortless, but that when you would go, that you would send the comforter. We thank you that he's taken up residence within our lives. But you also said he would not just comfort and strengthen us, you said he will teach you. And he'll take the things that pertain to me and he will reveal them unto you. And so we give you thanks and Lord we pray now that the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and revelation would be granted unto us. Open up the eyes of our understanding that we might better see the things that you have prepared for us so that we might live the way you have called us to live in your marvelous kingdom. We decree and we declare that, God, we have been born again and we are and in the kingdom of Almighty God. And You can't have a kingdom without a king and so we declare Jesus is our king. We declare that he rules and that he reigns and that we are his servants. And so, Lord, may you breathe upon the word of the Lord this morning. May our time be fruitful. May every life be strengthened. And may each of us at the end of the day be able to say that our lives have received not only truth, but the words that you speak, they are spirit and they are life. That we have been lifed by the word. And so bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may have a seat. What a joy to be with you. And it is. And, I, and we are family. We go back a long time. And... Uh, also want to bring greetings from Justin. And he's getting prepared to get married at the end of April. Amen. And God's doing marvelous things in his life. And I'm sure after he gets married sometime, they'll be around here in these parts and you'll be able to meet his wife and, and uh, hear the word of God come out of that young man. Many of you prayed for him for years. And uh, we just thank God for what the Lord's doing in his life. Good to see my sisters always, and Clarence, and everyone, the elders, and just everyone here. And what's that? Pastor Aaron. Where's Pastor Aaron? Good to see you. It's just, it's just a great, great joy to be with you. Uh, I love the name of the school, Prepare, because that's what it's all about. We're not here just to collect information. We're here to be prepared, prepared vessels of honor in preparing you. And so the subject that we're going to approach this morning and then come together for just a little while after lunch, I believe is one of the most vital and critical subjects. Uh, it is the foundation to me, to the kingdom of God. It is, uh, I call it following your way to leadership. It's something I put together. But it really is about understanding spiritual authority. Now, I want to say something about that topic, and I want to make some beginning statements before we really delve into the Word. 
There have been people, and many people, and I've met some over the years, that have been, unfortunately, they have been abused and hurt by those that have occupied places of spiritual authority. And I want, and maybe you're here today. Uh, I want to encourage you that uh, Paul tells us in Romans 1, he talks about those that hold the truth in unrighteousness. And uh, I've learned that there are those that could hold truth in unrighteousness, but that doesn't mean the truth they hold is unrighteous. And so it's very important to not allow our experience to discard truth because we've had a bad experience. You know, you could have people that have had three and four marriages, a woman that's been abused several times, and then she could have an assessment that marriage stinks. Well, marriage doesn't stink. You just have very bad experiences. And, uh, and so there are those that when we mention the topic spiritual authority, they're almost like a child that's been abused, and they automatically translate that to control. And we really need to deal with that because there's no way you and I can function in kingdom things unless we have a proper understanding of authority. You know, and uh, I remember... Oh... Now, my, my background is I'm, I'm a product of the local church. I'm not a product of a seminary. So the name of the course really was born out of my own process, following your way to leadership. Shortly after I came to Christ in October of 1978, I was 17. And then I was led to a church which became our home church is where we know each other from way back when. I started to serve as back then we had a parking lot ministry. And we needed to. Uh, for two reasons, the church was growing, and so and we didn't have all. When we had the small church, we didn't have all of the parking that we needed. God was moving, and also the church was in the middle of a residential neighborhood and area, and all the residents weren't about weren't as happy about the church as we all were. <laughs> and so, you know, there were people that would throw rocks, and so we only we not only helped people park, but there were people that would stay out in the parking lot. And at night, we'd had services, we'd have flashlights, and we'd have to watch cars. And that's where I started. That's why I, I was there. I was a parking lot attendant. Served there for a little while, and then I got promoted, and I was an usher at the door. So at least I'm in the church now. I mean, I've made it. I went from the outer court to, you know. And then from there, any other aspect was an aspect of service. Service. Now, there was prophecy in my life during all that time. There was prophecy in my life that God had called me to a five-fold ministry, that I would pastor and, and all of that. But uh, that did not really come into existence when I was separated unto a five-fold ministry, my wife and I. That was 1989 with the laying on of hands, and then we went to Boston. Well, before that, I had served as an assistant pastor and had served as an elder. Uh, so I was, I was involved in pastoral ministry, but wasn't separated with the laying on of hands to fivefold till 1989. But you say, how did you get there? Well, I followed my way to leadership. I followed my way all the way there. And you find from Genesis to Revelation that when it comes to leadership or it comes to authority, this is the way of God. That you follow your way. We could, we could, we could literally spend weeks and weeks and weeks. And I could teach on this, and I do on weeks and weeks and weeks. We could talk about the life of Elisha and Elijah, uh, Joshua and Moses. We could talk about uh, you know Jesus and the disciples, and every one of them that the baton was handed to followed their way there. The interesting thing too 
is that every one of them moved into a double portion and greater dimensions of authority than the one they followed. Even the disciples, as great, obviously, as Jesus was, he said, these works shall you do and greater works. And greater works. The ministry of Jesus while he was here, you know, he impacted people within about a 150-mile radius. But ever since he handed it to the disciples after he left, there's nowhere you can go in a globe without seeing a witness of Christ. How many know it's gone greater? It's gone greater. We could Elisha, Elijah, Joshua, Moses. Moses brought them out. Joshua brought them in. But we, what we find is that there is a very important principle that we really need to understand. And uh, because if you don't follow your way into a place of authority, you won't end up in authority with a servant's heart. Come on. And if you don't end up with a servant's heart, that's when the authority is used and abused. So God works in our lives in such a way where he develops the heart and the life of a servant so when we get into a place of authority, we understand that authority is not a place of arrival uh, for me in any way or for anyone to be able to dominate people. But if a servant gets there, authority has simply been given to me to better serve those I've been called to minister to with that authority. So the most important thing is to have the heart of a servant that is developed. And we're going to talk all about this. In uh, uh, the year 2000, my wife and I uh, moved to Pennsylvania. And when we moved to Pennsylvania from Boston, we had been in Boston 10 years, and then we moved to Pennsylvania in 2000. And I'll never forget, when we moved to Pennsylvania, uh, right while we were moving, one day morning I got up, and my arm had like a numb, a, a dull pain. Here they are. Bless you, Cyril. Dorothy. A dull pain. Nothing that really was an ache, but a dull pain. And I was always very... Uh, Athletic, I played baseball. I'm a righty. I played baseball, football, anything I had a ball, I played. But so it was like, wow, I must have just heard it when I was moving or I slept on it wrong. Well, it didn't go away after a few days, week, two weeks, three weeks. And then it got worse to such a point after about three weeks, I couldn't even pick up a glass. Wow, what in the world? Nothing swollen, didn't know what that was. So I was sharing this with one of the brothers from the church in Pennsylvania that uh, we were part of, and he was a chiropractor. He said, why don't you stop by my office? I'll take a look at you. And he wanted to take some x-rays. And I had never been to a chiropractor to this point in my life. So I did, and he took x-rays. And when they were developed, he said, uh, well, you, you do have a problem. I said, what's the problem? And the problem was in the top of my neck. I was out of alignment. The pain and the weakness was manifesting in my arm. But the source of the problem was in my spine. And he began to convince me. He said, you need to come, you need to come see me three times a week. And he said, and let me make some adjustments. Someone say adjustments. Let me make some adjustments, he said, and that will take care of it. Well, I was desperate enough. I said, I'll do it. So that's the first time I went to chiropractor. I'll never forget, three times a week. Well, you know, those adjustments. Now, there is some uh, feeling of pain in the adjustments. So I went three times a week. I went one month, two months. It was the, during the third month, 
One day I wake up, gone. I have full mobility, full strength, no pain to this day. No pain, gone. Absolutely gone. And that made me, first of all, believe in chiropractic care. I really did. But God began to show me something. He said, you developed hurt and weakness because the body was out of alignment with the head. And he said, and many of my people, there's weakness in the body. And they're not moving in the full strength of their calling because they're out of relational alignment with their headship. And I have served the Lord long enough to meet certain ones and know certain people that have tremendous gifts, unbelievable callings, but for years are not moving into the fruitfulness and strength because they're out of alignment with authority. They refuse to embrace authority. And because of being out of alignment, like my arm, they don't move in the fullness of the strength of their calling. So today, I do, you know, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Maybe I'm going to be like a spiritual chiropractor today. Maybe there's going to be a little adjustment today. But I would rather submit to the pain of adjustment. How many of you have God adjust you? There's always a little pain when you've got to adjust. Call repentance. There's always a little pain. But I would rather submit to the pain of the adjustment to do away with the pain that I was living with. Come on. And that's what I found, really, with spiritual authority. Now listen, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And I, I think you have notes, right? You all have notes? Okay. Those notes are for you. We're going to follow them. I'm going to go off on some other aspects. Those blanks are just to give you space to write uh, whatever it is you want to write as we cover these issues. And uh, I'd like you to go to Luke chapter 7. This is going to be our takeoff verse. Luke 7. It's so good to be with you. Luke 7 verse 1. And when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. Uh, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, because this man, this centurion, he loves our nation, speaking of the Jews, and he actually helped build us a synagogue. That's in verse 5. 6. When Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, and saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that you should enter my roof. So this man had a high regard for Jesus. He was not a Jew, a centurion, but evidently, what he had heard of Jesus, he believed in Jesus, at least uh, so far as his healing power was, because that's why he was asking him to heal his servant. He said, but I'm not worthy. Verse 7, neither did I think myself worthy to even come to you. He sent servants. But he said, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also, here's the premise of his faith. He's not quoting Jeremiah. He's not quoting Isaiah. He don't quote the prophets because he's a Roman. But what he does know is military maneuvers. And he understands authority. And look what it says in verse 8. For I also am a man set. Someone say set. The word set means to be established. 
I'm a man established under authority. Having under me soldiers, I say to one go and he goes, to another come and he comes, to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turned him about and said to the people, I say to you, I've not found so great faith, no, not in all of Israel. In Israel, they that went returned to the house, the servant was whole. This man is not a Jew. This man is not referring to prophets, the writing of the prophets. But he is drawing from his military and government experience. He's moving in dynamics of faith that Jesus said, hold the train. I want to make this man an example. This man understands some things because this man understood how a kingdom operated. See? And he said, I understand in the military world, because I'm set under authority, I can give a word and a maneuver will take place in a whole nother location through a chain of command. And the chain of command is by those who occupy and are set, know their place, occupy their place, and it creates a chain of authoritative command so that something can come out of the Pentagon in the Situation Room and a maneuver can take place in Afghanistan. You don't have to have, you know, a, a full bird colonel. You don't have to have a four-star general get on a plane, go to some field of battle, and make sure that all the maneuvers are taking place because a chain of command works when you understand authority. So the military man said, well, I understand how it works in this aspect. And he says, perhaps in the world of miracles, that's how it works. So you don't even have to come to my house. We need a maneuver. I need healing in the house. But you don't even have to come to the house. Because I see something. You, I too, you are a man set under authority. Your word will have authority. And Jesus looked at all that. He said he marveled at these things. What things? The concept. The understanding that this man had. And as a result, he did get his miracle. And so that is the primary scripture. I too am a man set under authority. And as a result of being under, he then demonstrates how he has authority. And it's not because of anything other than his position as to be under. Now, come with me to Romans 13. Praise the name of the Lord. Romans chapter 13. What I want to do is I want us to understand scripturally authority. We're going to define authority and define rebellion. Oh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. I'm sorry. Did I tell you 1 Corinthians? Oh, yeah, Romans 13. Okay, Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, plural. For there is no power, singular, but of God. The powers, plural, that be, are ordained or established of God. Whoso therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power... 
Do that which is good and you'll have praise of the same. What's the same? You'll have praise of the power. You'll be rewarded by the power. He is the minister of God to do thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, he's be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. I'm going to just make one statement, a side note. That those several verses are the, it's really the, the crux of the, of the purpose for all civil government. It's the crux for the purpose of all civil government. And that is this, that civil government is God's instrument to administer temporal judgment against the evil. Now we know there's an ultimate day of judgment. But civil government is God's temporal instrument. Now notice he uses the word minister three times there. It's the same word Paul used when he referred to his apostleship as being a minister. Because all authority comes from God. And as long as government is executing evil, uh, executing judgment against what God says is evil, they are acting as his minister and they bear not the sword in vain. But let's, let's talk about really what I want to get to. And that is he mentions the word power, powers, powers about five times. It is the word exousia. It is the word for authority. So what we see here is let every soul be in subjection to the higher authorities. How many know there are different authorities? There's authority in the home. There's authority in the church. There's authority in government. There's authority everywhere, every facet of life. There will be, the moment you're born, you're going to be faced with meeting authority. And he says, all authority comes from God. There is no authority except that which comes from God. Now it says in verse 2, if you resist the authority, no matter what authority we're talking about now, if you resist the authority, what does it go on to say? You will receive, you resist the ordinance of God. Notice, I think I put in your notes, if you look on page 2. Under A. Well, let's look at number 1. Direct versus delegated authority. Direct authority means God, God himself. How many know when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus, he had an encounter with direct authority? Jesus showed up, independent of, of human instrumentation. After he had a little talk with Jesus, then Jesus had a talk with Ananias. After his encounter with Jesus, then he had an encounter with what? Delegated authority. Delegated authority is any authority, because all authority comes from God, any authority that is, that is invested in any vessel other than God himself. Because that authority came from God. So that's delegated authority. Parents have delegated authority. A pastor has delegated authority. A president, a king, whatever the form of government is, has delegated authority. That's all delegated because the authority did not derive from them. All authority comes from where? We, we need to really, all authority comes from God. There is no authority except that which comes from God. So if anybody that has authority, you may have it, but it didn't come from you. That's why we're going to answer to God for it. Because anything that I've received, I received is a gift. 
And I'm going to answer for anything I've received from God. So all authority comes from God. But here's the interesting thing. Knowing that whosoever resists, not, not the people, notice that, the power, the authority. Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. The word resist, oh, I don't even have to write it out. Look on there. Resist comes from a long Greek word that's a compound word, anti or anti, which means in the place of or to be against. Like antichrist means in the place of the anointed one. In the place of. It speaks of a substitution. So anti and the word tasso is order and arrangement. God has established an order of authority. You can resist God's authority by establishing a substitute order. That literally is a resistance to God's order. Okay? Because God has a certain chain of command. Now look at the word ordinance. Diatasso, a diatage, but it comes from... Dia means to go through with the idea of penetration. The idea... How many know the devil is called Diabolo, Diabolos? It says, beware because your adversary, the devil, Diabolos, Diabolos, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Why is he called Diabolos? Dia means to go through. It's a preposition. It, it's the idea of penetrating. Bolos, speaking of the devil, means to hurl a stone. The way the enemy attacks is he hurls accusations. And he keeps hurling them to penetrate you. To penetrate your thinking. To penetrate your house. He doesn't just want to throw a stone at your house. He keeps throwing. Keeps accusing. Keeps accusing. Keeps accusing. That's what the idea is. This word means it is the ordinance of God. God sets an order. So what we have here is we got God. God has all authority. But God has a desire to work in the home. So how does God's authority begin to change things in the home? He has an order. He has an order. He has a chain of command. He has a father or a husband. He has a wife. Children. That's God's order. And this authority, in order for this home to begin to reflect the way God intended for a home to be, what happens is God begins to work through an order. When this order comes into alignment the way my spine did, into proper when the, when the children come into proper order with the parents, and the wife comes into proper order with the husband, and the husband comes into proper order with Christ, you know what happens to the home? automatically God's authority begins to work its work in that home, producing in the home what God always meant for a home to be. See, a lot of times we think what we need is some kind of miracle from an angel to come and fix our life. And what God is saying, get into order. Get into alignment. But when we have a wife that wants to usurp the husband's authority, and we've got a man who refuses to assume his authority, and we've got the kids rebelling against mom and dad, 
you can pray for them and pour all the oil on the family, there's only going to be chaos and problems in the home because they're out of order. Out of order. When we come into order with God's authority, this is the way it works, then God's blessing and all that God meant begins to make its way dia, it penetrates. How does God penetrate the home? God will begin to penetrate that home by establishing his order in that home. We got to see this. Wow. What order could accomplish, miracles could never accomplish. I'm telling you. We've wanted quick fix you can quote the Bible till you're blue in the face. You've got to get into order. Got to get into order. And when there is order, what's happening is God's government is being set up. God has a government for the home. God has a government for the church. God has a government for nations. And when we embrace God's idea of government and we come and submit to that order, then the blessing of God penetrates the home penetrates the church, penetrates the nation. It's very important. But when we resist the ordinance of God, now watch, when we resist, oh, nobody said, I'm not resisting God. Nobody in their right mind would think of resisting God. But when you resist God's order, who are you resisting? You're resisting God himself because all the powers that be are ordained, they are ordered of God. So re to resist the order is to resist God and to say, well, you know what, we've got a family, but we don't really get our order from the Bible. Now we read psychology, see, and we've got a new thing. Now you be friends with your children. We don't believe in doing, so okay, you got a whole different order than what God said and you're going to have the fruit of that order. You could pray in wanting God's blessing, but until you get into his order. Is this making sense? All right. And I really want to establish this. So everything, same thing with churches. Say, well, you know, we really want to see God move. And what you have is we have the congregation. They vote. They're going to vote on who's going to be the pastor. And, and everybody is just so sweet. And you could all be nice, but you're out of order. God has an order. He has set in the body. Come on, somebody say set. He has set apostles. He has set prophets. He has set. This God operates according to certain orders with apostles and elders and deacons. And these are not simply titles. These are descriptions of spheres of authority with responsibility. And when we regard God's order, wherever God's order is, you begin to see then the blessing of God. You'll begin to see the glory of God. You'll begin to see what God intended for whatever it is we're talking about. That's why we need to understand this principle of order. Principle of order. But see, you and I, here's what we've got to be careful about. We live in America. And the spirit of this culture interprets authority as control because we are have an independent spirit and it's all about my calling and my ministry and my desire and if i feel led i like you know you all got a pretty building you always did but this is really i like this one even better and you got nice lights and you got nice air conditioning and people have all these different ideas of why they feel led to stay 
why they feel led to go. And it's all, they, they become their own Lord. And they become, hear what I'm saying now, this is in this, in this culture, we gotta understand the spirit that we, that has gotten into the church. And you know what, I don't agree with pastor, I don't agree, we're gonna take a vote. Well, that may work in our republic, but the church was never called to be a republic. The church is a demonstration of a kingdom. Come on! And then we wonder why we've got the mess we have and wonder why the church really, we can do things with a lot of money, but we're really spiritually weak. And it's like my arm, I can't even lift up a cup and I can't even throw a ball and I used to be able to do that. Why? Because I'm out of alignment with my head. And I had to, my body had to come back into proper alignment and once it did, strength returned to me. Ability returned to me. And I believe that as God brings the church back into alignment with his word, with his ways, with his authority. We got to begin with the authority of the word, first of all. With his word, all of a sudden, the right hand of God will be seen in the church again. Power and miracles and the very things that we are called to bring to a generation. But we got to get into order. Come on now. This is why the first commandment would promise. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right in the sight of God. And this is the first commandment with promise. So you obey. Who's mom and dad? Authority. They're the first authority every baby meets. Mom and dad. Mom and dad. So when you submit to that authority, God says this. If you obey mom and dad, your life will go well. You'll have peace and even longevity of life. It's the commandment with promise. What's unique about that commandment? It contains the principles of having to honor delegated authority. Delegated authority. Now, let's go on to the next page. So, we understand that all authority comes from God. God's the originator of authority. I mean, so much so that even when Jesus is standing before Pilate, now time does not permit, I've I've printed out a lot of scripture references for you, but we can't turn to all of them so that I could say what I need to say in the time that we have. Even when Jesus is standing before Pilate, and there he is, Pilate is the governor. And Pilate looks at Jesus and says, and Jesus, fulfilling scripture, is like a lamb dumb brought before his shearers. He's not talking much. He's simply ready to lay his life down as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And here he is, and Pilate's looking at him, and Pilate doesn't want to have this man crucified. He's not threatened by him. He doesn't see this. This this guy just some rabbi, preacher. And, you know, Pilate is more concerned with having peace in his jurisdiction. And we got all these Jews upset about this radical rabbi, and Pilate looked at him, and he said, I find no fault with the man. And Pilate wanted to kind of get rid of him. And Pilate looks at Jesus, and he says, makes this statement. He said, don't you know I've got the power... I've got the authority. He said to have you crucified or have you released. Well, that got a little response from Jesus. And Jesus looks at a Roman governor and says, you could have no authority. You have no authority except it were given you. 
So basically what Jesus said is, I'm not submitting to you. I recognize that you've got an authority that came from my father. And you don't have the power to crucify me. He says, I of my own power lay my life down. And I take it up again as I receive commandment from my father to do so. So Jesus recognized the authority of the, of the governor that was going to really give the final judgment and verdict to have this man carried away and crucified. But he said, let's get something straight. You have no authority except it were given you. And because Jesus recognized that you're just a glove that my father's hand is wearing. And because Jesus recognized the father operating, he had no problem submitting himself because he knew he's committing himself really to the hand of his father. Because he recognized that all authority comes from God. Well, if God is the originator of all authority, let's talk for a few moments about rebellion. And let's define rebellion, biblically. Rebellion. Well, go to, if you would, go to Ezekiel chapter 28. We do have to look at these scriptures. Ezekiel chapter 28. Rebellion. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. We'll start there. These are two prophetic scriptures identifying Satan. Verse 13. I'm sorry. Ezekiel 28. Verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now before this, he speaks to the prince of Tyrus. Now he's speaking to the king of Tyrus, the prince and the king. They're not one and the same. One speaks of the earthly ruler. And now he's speaking about the power. He's speaking concerning the power behind the earthly ruler. There's a king behind the prince. He says in verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God, The seal of the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. In fact, by the language, you'll see it's impossible for any man that was the king of Tyrus, a natural king, to fulfill what he's talking about. You've been in Eden. Come on. You have been in Eden. He said, every precious stone was your covering. He said, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, carbuncle, the workmanship of your tablets, your pipes, was prepared in the day that you were created. You are the anointed cherub. You look it up, it's angel. You are the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Someone say, God set the cherub. The word set means to establish in a certain place. So what we have here prophetically is a picture of Satan before the rebellion, before the fall. He said, you, were an, uh, you are a cherub I anointed and I established in your place. He said, you're the cherub that covereth. And if you look at the word covereth, it actually means to cover the throne. He said, I set you in proximity to the throne. That was your place. And notice he talks about diamonds and emeralds. All those precious stones have one thing in common. 
They require light to be, to be seen and to be appreciated. A diamond, the brilliance of a diamond could only be appreciated when it is exposed to the light. Same thing with an emerald. So you, I made you the sum total of beauty. You are my workmanship in the world of angels. And I set you in proximity so that the light from the throne would cause your beauty to shine. And you were beautiful among the angels and I set you and it was my glory reflecting off of you that caused you to become a wonder to all of the angels. But I set you in that place. You, when I got to creating you, you were going to be a masterpiece among the angelic host. You are the sum of beauty. You are the sum of my, you were going to reflect my glory, so I set you in proximity to my throne. That's what he's saying. He said, and you were perfect, verse 15, in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Iniquity means something twisted. I made you perfect, but something got twisted on the inside. By the multitude of your merchandise, it goes on, and then he says, you've sinned. Therefore, I will cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. You've corrupted your wisdom. Now, it doesn't say he lost his wisdom. Satan is depicted as a cunning deceptive, it's wisdom twisted. It's wisdom. He said, you corrupted your wisdom, right? I will cast you to the ground. I will lay you before kings. How many know we are kings? And that you, they're going to be behold you. So he says, look, he said, you were beautiful. Your position was before my throne. You were the sum total. You bore the signature of my creative ability among the angelic host. He says, and I gave you wisdom and all these things, but something got twisted on the inside. And when it got twisted on the inside, God called it iniquity was found in you. He said, and then as a result, because of that iniquity, your wisdom got twisted and it became corrupt. And he said, you're destined for destruction. I'm going to destroy you. I've cast you out of your place. Remember, Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning. I beheld him fall as lightning. Many believe, and I do share this opinion, and it is speculation, that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 is when the fall of this cherub occurred. The reason why is because it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 says, and the earth was without form and void. And if you look it up, it means it was chaotic and it was out of order. God doesn't have to create trees. God doesn't. He then speaks to the earth. He said, let the earth bring forth. Meaning all of the seed was already in it. Now God is renewing creation. So something took place from the creation to the, to the, chaos, to the chaos of creation. What caused the chaos? Because in Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord that created the earth and I didn't create it void. So when God creates something, he doesn't create something in an order, in, in a chaotic mess. So something, there was a cause 
that brought about chaos. So really, Genesis 1 is a, is a depiction of a recreation. It's the Spirit of God moving where now darkness is covering. And it's God bringing order out of chaos. That's why it's really a depiction of our lives. You and I were born a mess. Come on. We were born with darkness prevailing in our minds. Leave a child to himself and he will always bring his mother shame. You've got to, you've got to instill things in a child. A parent has got to work hard in order to try to curb the rebellion because foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. They come rebellious. Come on. They come out screaming, wanting their way. Right from the beginning. They're trying to order mom and dad, change me, feed me, do everything for me. Come on. They come out believing their whole world revolves around them. And if you let that alone and you don't curb that and you don't deal with that, how many know by the time they're 18 and 20, they're going to end up in jail? Because that's, we came into this world a mess. Being born again is a new creation. Come on. Where the Spirit of God now takes the mess and makes us into a new creation. Just like he did in Genesis chapter 1. Praise the Lord. So in this passage, we see this. We see that uh, Satan or Lucifer... Now go to, if you would, go to Isaiah. Isaiah 14. We've got to see this foundationally. You could tell I like this topic, huh? Yeah, I just think it's... I know that it's so very important. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, if you would. Okay. Verse 12, how art thou fallen from where? Heaven, O Lucifer. Some have believed that this is speaking prophetically of Adam. I don't believe that because when Adam was created, he didn't come from heaven. Adam was created from the earth. We didn't fall from, mankind didn't fall from heaven. Mankind was created in, by, of the earth. We have been created for the earth. We fell from a relationship with God. But the anointed cherub fell from heaven. Okay? So, and the word Lucifer means, Oh, son of the morning. Bright one. Shining one. How are you fallen? You that are now cut down to the ground. You started in heaven. Now you're on the ground. And you weaken the nations. How many know our real problem is a spiritual one? Here's the iniquity. What, I, what Ezekiel said was twisted, Isaiah tells us to twist. He said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the congregation, verse 14. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High, yet you're going to be brought down to hell to the very sides of the pit. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He was no longer satisfied with the place that God established for him. He began, you were, he became corrupt by his own brightness. He forgot he only had the stones. God is the light. Without light, you're not beautiful. But he, he saw this beauty. And he forgot that the source of his beauty came from God. 
And no longer was he satisfied with just covering the throne. He said, I will be, finally, I'm going to be like the Most High. And I'm going to establish my throne. It's the I will, I will, I will. So biblically speaking, rebellion is whenever we establish our will over the will of our authority. Because all authority comes from what? Comes from what? God. Rebellion is not quite easy to see sometimes because it's an issue of will. We're not talking about... Rebellion doesn't always make the biggest noise. Rebellion doesn't always have profanity. Rebellion doesn't... Rebellion is an inside job. And it's the most severely condemned sin in all the Bible. So I call rebellion, since God is the originator of authority, Satan, Lucifer, is the, re, is the originator of all what? So re, when you're operating in rebellion, you're operating in the Satan principle. You're operating in Satan principle. Satan comes, utilizes a serpent, which was a beautiful creature before it was judged, and begins to talk to the woman. Remember, you have been in Eden. Now, when God created man, we've got to understand authority because right from the very creation, God said, let us make man after our own image and likeness. What's the next thing God said about man? Let them have dominion. So within the context of God wanting a species called man, that man was made to be an expression of God's authority in the realm of creation. Then God created man and he told man, let them have dominion over everything in the earth. Notice they were never to have dominion over another man. Never to have dominion over another man. That's another topic. So they would have dominion. Now, we got a problem though because we got a, I'm going to just say this so you get the idea. We got a snake in the garden. But there is no problem. You can't have a snake in the garden. We got a man that has authority in the garden. And as long as you've got authority, that talking serpent won't pose a problem. Come on, Jesus said, behold, I give you authority over serpents. One day that serpent comes in. The enchanter, it's what a serpent means. That's the way, enchanter. There had to be something about this animal. He starts talking to the woman. And God said, of all the trees, you could freely eat, but one tree hands off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's not an apple. It's not a pear. It's a, it's a means by which you determine what's right and what's wrong. God never, never called man to make the judgment as to what's right or what's wrong for his life. I still can't make that judgment for my life. I can't judge what's right and wrong for my life. There's so many things in my life that I faced I thought were wrong and I found out they were right. So I've just determined all things work together for good. Come on, Joseph said what you meant for, God turned for the good. There's only one way I judge what I'm facing is right or wrong is I ask God about it. Because I can face things, I say, there's no way this is good for my life. And God says, son, it is good for your life. I can't judge it. So when the man reached for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
what happened was he then began to assess his life and make judgments all of life through the lens of self-knowledge. He would become the determinator of what's right and what's wrong, independent of what God said. Okay? And here comes the serpent eating this fruit. Come on. Eating this fruit. And of course, she was drawn in with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, so on. And that's how rebellion entered in. When the man took of the fruit, God told him not to. When the man took of the fruit, then the Bible says that man, in that moment, basically came out from under God's authority. No longer does God become my determination as to what's right, what's wrong. Now it's by my own knowledge I will determine what's right and what's wrong. He literally becomes a God unto himself. So he came out from under God's authority and rebellion entered the human race. Okay? And because rebellion entered the human race, now we've got a law of reproduction. God set laws like the law of gravity. What was the law of reproduction? Let everything reproduce after its own what? Its own kind. We see that. I mean, farmers operate by that law. They want an apple orchard. They get apple seeds. And then the seeds are in the fruit of the apple. Never are you going to get an orange seed in an apple. Because it can only reproduce after its own kind. God established that law. So a corrupt man could only reproduce what? A corrupt seed. So the Bible tells us in Romans 5, by one man's sin, many were made sinners. That corruption and that fall, which we call original sin or the fallen nature, that fall made its way into the seed of that species. That's why we need to be born again, and I've got to be born of another seed. Because my father could only pass on to me corruption, selfishness, rebellion. So I've got to be born again. See, re religion, what religion does is try to make you become right having been born wrong. But you can never rewrite your birth. I can live in a church sanctuary. I can have rosary beads on my neck all the way down. It can't change what I got in birth. Come on. So Jesus said you must be born again. If you're going to have good fruit in your life, it's got to be traced back to a correct birth. So I require a second birth. Come on now. Glory to God. I don't want to go there, but that's just, we need to understand that. So we have then, this Satan principle was passed on all the way through. Did that mean everybody's Satan, uh, demon possessed? No. It's the knowledge of what's right and wrong. Let me give you a for instance. One day Jesus, he's about to go to the cross. He's very close to going to the cross. And he's talking to Peter. He loves Peter. And Peter, and Jesus starts talking about how he must suffer. And Peter says... In Luke 13, Peter says, uh, Luke, Luke 22, he says, Far be it from you, Lord, to suffer. 
That's a pretty nice thing to say. I mean, you know, your, your companion doesn't want you to suffer. He said, no, Lord, you keep talking about this suffering. Far be it from you to suffer. Doesn't even get the words out of his mouth. And Jesus turns and says, Satan, Satan, get thee behind me. Why did he call him Satan? He, told, he said, Peter, he said, you only think human thoughts. See, you're assessing whether I should suffer according to your own knowledge, whether it's good or evil. And because you're operating by the carnal mind, Satan is operating through you, setting a snare for me. Wow. And because you only assess the plan of God by what you think is right and what you think is wrong, Satan and that serpent is able to operate through you because it's in rebellion, really, to what God says I must do. I can't buy that. I can't eat of that fruit. i got to bypass that trap. See, so the first Adam did not surrender his will to God. And this is important to see. This is the reason why Jesus is called the last Adam. It's the story of two Adams. The first Adam lost his place in a garden, right? Now the last Adam is in a garden. It's called Gethsemane. All of Jesus' life, he's obeying his father. We find here, but now he's in another garden. And now he's alone. He's the last Adam. What does Jesus say when he's faced with drinking the sinful cup of all humanity? If there be another way, nevertheless, come on, finish it with me. Not my will. It was an issue of wills. He could win or lose it right there. And if he did not surrender his will... That would have involved suffering and death to the will of his father. He would have committed the same sin of the first Adam. But he came and he said, not my will. But I'm not going to be moved from my place. My will is going to stay surrendered to you. In humanity. Thy will be done. That's what gave the cross power to save us. Because there was a man that became obedient unto death. Hear what I'm saying? Even the death of the cross. This is what gives the cross power to save. If Jesus just decided to die for us in some great noble humanitarian act, while it could be applauded, it'd have no power to save. The only reason, in fact, he would have died as a witch. If he died on that cross, and that was not the express will of the Father, though he died, he would have died in rebellion. Let me give you a scripture. 1 Samuel chapter 15. The prophet comes to Saul, and he tells him, utterly destroy the Amalekites. God was about to judge the Amalekites for what they did centuries before. Their day of judgment was here. He said, I put a sword in your hand, King Saul. You're to utterly destroy them. God gives him a great victory, but he saves the king. And evidently, he saved others too. And he saves the best cattle. And he saves the best sheep. And here comes the prophet, 1 Samuel 15. And, and the prophet's coming. He sees this huge altar. He sees smoke going up. He sees everybody celebrating Jehovah. 
So the prophet goes, he said, how you doing, Saul? Now, prophet's the one who gave him the word. Hey, you, you arrived just in time. We're about to give God the greatest sacrifice. Man, Samuel, God gave us quite a victory. He's such a good God. We just want to give him worship. We want to give him a sacrifice that's due his name. And he's listening. All of a sudden, he hears some sheep. And he hears some oxen. He said, hey, well, excuse me one second. I know you, before you start sacrificing, how come I hear sheep? Wasn't the word to utterly destroy? Well, yeah, we understand all that, but we think, you know, we're just going to give God sacrifice. He's worthy of the best. But wait, didn't God say destroy? Did he say destroy the ox? Now, wait a second. He said to obey is better than what? And to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion, come on, is as the sin of... He's talking to a man that's about to worship God. He's calling him a witch. This is not an adulterous man. This is not a man that is messing and thieving and robbing. This is a religious man that's about to honor God with the greatest sacrifice. And he says, you're filled with rebellion because you didn't obey what God said. Some of the most rebellious people are not behind bars. They're in sanctuaries every Sunday. You know why? They're worshiping God their way. They're serving God their way. They're living their way and still calling themselves a Christian. They're saying it's all right for me to love another man, a woman to love another woman, and we still could be Christian. Come on now. No, no, no. You can't live the way you want and call what God says is a Christian life. That is rebellion and it is as witchcraft. Why witchcraft? Because it's a Satan principle. Wow. See, now you'll, under, you'll begin to understand the most important thing in your life and my life is for us to offer God a life of obedience. And for me to obey God is going to require for me to have to die to myself. You see, on Jesus' cross, he dealt with my sinful man. But on my cross, I deal with my carnal man. He didn't die for my carnal man. He died for my sinful man. My sinful man was dealt with on his cross. My selfish man gets dealt with on my cross. You know what I'm saying? I could preach the Bible and be a man of rebellion. Why? If God never called me to do that. Where did that come from? Let's say God wanted me to be a banker. And he wanted me to bring his life, his witness, into the field of banking. But I don't want to do that. i got a preacher's itch. And if he could do it, I could do it. So I'm going to go, I decide I'm going to go preach the Bible. I could be preaching the Bible, quoting John 3.16, and I'm doing it the same way Saul was offering sacrifice. And you would never say, that's a rebellious man. My God, he's holding a Bible. I could, I could sit in a pew. I could sit in a pew and sing the songs with lifted hands. And in my heart, I'm filled with rebellion. Because I'm wanting to serve God my way. See, we've got to see the way God sees it. It's an issue of the will. It's an issue of the heart. Can you say amen? All right, let's move on in our notes here. How are we doing as far as time? Where's... What time are we doing? 
Take a break? Yeah. Let's continue on here. So we understand some aspects of the fall and redemption. Let me go to your notes. See, I had to really uh, shorten things for our time. Look on page three. So here's page three, some key review points, seven of them. God possesses all authority. All authority comes from God. Number three, God's authority is a divinely ordained order. Okay? To resist authority is to resist who? It's to resist God. It doesn't mean the man's God. It doesn't mean the woman's God. This is where we have the controversy, and we're going to get into it in a little while, is we have a problem when the, the authority is pure, but God works in the hide of fallen man. And we get distracted by the warts and the pimples and all of the misgivings of the humanity that God works with. Somebody told me, said, why does God anoint imperfect vessels? You know what I said? Because that's all he's got to work with. Simple answer. There's only one time he had an imperfect vessel, a perfect vessel to work with, and guess what? He took him home. He's not here. He's sitting on the throne. From Adam to now, that's all God has to work with. So you're going to have to determine what you're going to focus on. Do I see the authority or do I see an excuse for me to resist God's authority? We'll talk about that. Number five, Satan is the originator of all rebellion. Angels were drawn into the rebellion. We see that in Revelation chapter 12. Satan rebelled against God by seeking to establish what? Over God's authority. And that is the Satan principle. Now, we, we just discussed Adam. Keep going. Go to page five. Always referring to Jesus as our ultimate example in all things. How many know he's the reference point for everything? That's right. He's the cornerstone. He's the reference point. When we consider the life of Jesus, look what it says in Romans 5.19, near the top part of your page. For as by one man's disobedience, who was that one man? Adam. Many were, notice it doesn't say many sinned. Sin means that I committed the act. Many were made sinners. I sinned because I was made a sinner. I wasn't made a sinner because I sinned. Somebody sinned and made me a sinner. And now I sin because of what I've been made. Okay? All right. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by, this is a comparison now, so by the what of one? Obedience. Obedience of one. Shall many be made? Oh, let, let's just stop right there. If I'm not a sinner by the sins I commit, then I'm not righteous by the righteousness I do. One man put me in the sin category. Another man put me in the righteous category. Come on. But as a result of me being in the sin category, I perpetuated sinfulness. If I'm in the righteous category, what should I do? 
I should live in righteousness. I should perpetuate righteousness. He that is righteous doeth righteousness. So I, w- I was taken out of one category. Actually, the old man was put to death in that category. And I was born again in the other category. Isn't that wonderful? Folks, we really got to see that because 99.9% of all problems, as far as a person's walk with God, will somehow trace its roots back to their sense of personal identity. You could only live out according to what you believe your identity is. That's why God changes our identity from the moment we're born again. And the more I recognize who I am in Him, the more my life's actions and my behavior will come, will bear witness to what I believe about myself. That's why words are so powerful. You know, you could have a child that will grow up nearly all their life being a failure, struggling with failure, because all their life the, uh, an identity was reinforced. You're just no good. You'll never amount to any. You're just like your father. You'll never amount to anything. We don't realize. We reinforce into that young, fertile mind a sense of identity. And why does it go so deep? Because whether we're aware of it or not, we are an authority in their life. And the authority in your life is what could really wound you. It's what could really hurt you because there's a power with that authority expression. Come on. That's why we've got to be responsible, but rather with hands to cultivate and to flourish and deal with acts. Even as parents, deal with, never say, never say, if you've got young kids, you're a bad boy and spank them. They're not bad boy. They, what they did was bad. We've got to deal with that. Come on now. But don't you impress upon them an identity that could literally keep them crippled for the rest of their life until God, by some miraculous means, will give light to them. Very important that we understand that. Very important. Okay. Now, Jesus is Lord. Amen? But He also provides us with a pattern. I call it the pattern of sonship. The pattern of sonship. As many as received him, John 1, 1, 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become what? We are sons of God. Beloved, now we are the sons of God. Right? We're sons. You ladies, you're all sons. I'm a son. I'm as much of a bride as you are a son. It's not a gender thing. It's a relationship thing. We've received the Spirit that crieth, Abba, Father. So we're all sons. Somebody say, I'm a son of God. All right, well then if you are a son of God, and you are, we must look to the ultimate son as our example in all things. Jesus is born. We know of his birth, miraculous birth. But then the next time we really meet Jesus, he's 30 years old. So we go from basically his birth until he's 12 years old. Remember when he was 12? He's 12 and he's in the temple, right? He's in the temple and he's with, he's with the doctors of the law, asking and answering questions. Joseph and Mary can't find him. How many know that was a pretty bad day for them? I mean, come on, you misplaced the Son of God. It's like, I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. My God, where is the Son of God? Where is he? And they're looking all over and they looked among their own kin. 
And that's what people do when they start searching for Jesus. I see that. All of a sudden they feel like, I need to find God. They'll go back to the church that their father went to. They start going back to the religion they were raised in. They look for Jesus among their own kin. They start looking with where they were familiar, where he might be, until finally where you think he's going to be, in the temple. And he's talking and answering and asking questions. And Mary comes, sweat as she said, Son, don't you know me and your father father sought you sorrowing and he looked at her he said don't you know I must be about my father's business he was mindful at 12 of who his father was but how many know just because he knew the father's business he wasn't yet ordained to work in the business and then from that day Luke 2 it says and from that day he went back with Mary and Joseph, submitted unto them in all things. And he grew in wisdom and in stature, both and in favor, both with God and with man. So for 20, 12 years old to 30 is what? 18 years. For 18 years, we've got one commentary on the life of Jesus. He, you know, he's not healing a third grader. He's not raised, you know, he's not doing miracles in the ninth grade. You know, he's, he's not doing any of that. What's he doing? He is submitting to mom and dad. He's helping dad in the carpenter shop. He's really known as the son of a carpenter. That's all he knows. But all the while, we know he knows who his father is. But he's obeying his father, not by miracles, by recognizing right now in this life, who the authority is. It's Mary. It's Joseph. And for 18 years, he's faithful. He's worked. And what's happening? He's growing in wisdom. He's growing in favor. He's growing in stature. Until the next time we meet him, at 30 years old, he's in the waters of Jordan. The prophet John the Baptist is there. He sees the Spirit of God come upon him as a dove. And he hears the voice of his father. What does his father say? This is my beloved son, watch, in whom I am what? Pleased. He hadn't even performed the miracle. He hadn't even raised the dead. What in the world could the father have been pleased with about Jesus? Up until this point, he was pleased with the kind of obedience he rendered to the father by rendering it to the delegated authority that was over his life. Wow. So what we have here, Jesus provides us with a friend. He grows up. Somebody say grow up. Yeah, you got to grow up. You grow up. He grows up under delegated authority. Then B... Next stop, we find there's a transition of headship or transition of authority. Now he's no longer under Joseph. Now God used Joseph to prepare his son so he can come under the father's headship directly and walk in three and a half years of ministry. But if he wasn't faithful to Joseph... He would have never been able to stand in the Jordan and the father say, I am well pleased. Before he could have become the preacher, 
he had to be called the son of the carpenter. And then he had to be called the carpenter. He took over the business. So he had to be faithful before the father would have entrusted him with putting eyeballs back in sockets. He had to be able to be faithful to put chair legs where they belong. Come on now. Do not disconnect what you're doing on the job with the preparation for your life to fulfill whatever God's mandate is for your life. Come on. You're in the school. This is God's school. And he'll, he'll utilize and he'll work and he'll prepare and he'll train and, and he'll have people over you that are difficult. And God, if you could recognize God in it, you could recognize that they've been striped by God for your life and you submit as unto the Lord, then you realize, go ahead, because you're just, you're just gloves that the Father's using to shape me and to mold me and to make me so that I can become more pliable in His hand and I can fulfill His will. That's the school we need to graduate from. Come on, you hear what I'm saying? Everything you go through in life, every authority you face in life, it is God incognito. It is God. So now there's a transition because he was faithful. So Jesus now begins to minister in power. Then John chapter 5 verse 30. Somebody turn there quick. Well, I guess you can get that on the board. John 5, man, you're ahead of me. They're prophetic. They're turning to the scriptures before I get up there. Okay, look what it says. Let's read it. I can myself do nothing as I... No, stop, stop. As I hear, I what? Okay, what was the tree that Adam took from? The knowledge of good and evil. He stopped judging by hearing. He started judging what's right and wrong by what he thought. What does Jesus say? I ain't eating from that tree. As I hear, I judge. Okay, judge. And my judgment is what? Why does he have righteous judgment? Let's read it. Because do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. I literally have so removed myself out of the picture. My own wishes, my own prejudices, my own likings. I am so removed from the picture that whatever the Father says about it, I'm okay with it. And because I live that way, all my judgments are absolutely right on target. But notice, I seek not my own what? Will. But the will of the Father who sent me. This describes the very life of Jesus. He never, it was a life of obedience. Hebrews 5 says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he must what? Suffer. There's always suffering involved as you learn the lessons of obedience. Because true obedience will deal with the stubbornness of our own will. It's the school of suffering, but it's a good suffering. Because the fruit is, I learn... Look, if he had to learn obedience... By the things that he suffered. And he wasn't dealing with rebellion. You know, he's God. But God had to learn something. And he could only learn it in the form of man. Because God was only in authority. God was in obedience to no one. 
Only through the person of his son was God in submission to levels of authority. Before Jesus came, who's God in submission to? He's God. But he learned obedience in humanity by the things which he suffered. That's why when you're suffering, there's nobody that can comfort you like God. He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He took upon himself the flesh, robed himself in flesh, and he was faced with every temptation you were ever faced with. Come on. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. Okay, so what we have then is a life of obedience. So go to, go to Philippians chapter 2, and we will end with this and take a little break. Philippians 2, verse 5. Praise the Lord. Philippians 2, verse 5. And then we're going to read on through, probably to verse 8. Let this mind be in you. The word mind there is attitude. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ. All right, I need to know what attitude he's talking about. Let's go to verse 6. Who... Being in the form of God, he was established in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. How many know that when you are something, you don't have to rob to be something? Because you are something. He didn't consider robbery to be equal with God. Let's go on. Verse 7. But made himself of no reputation. Watch. Taking the form of a slave or bondservant, coming in the likeness of men. Stop right there. He was created in the likeness of man, but he took upon himself the form of a servant. You're, nobody's born a servant. You've got to take that form onto yourself. I was talking to a young man a couple of years ago, and we were talking about his calling. I'm talking about how that the greatest in the kingdom is a servant. And I started to share with him about take this scripture, taking your, upon yourself the form of a servant. What form? Well, I talked about the eyes of a servant. I talked about the mind, how a servant thinks, how a servant sees, the heart of a servant, the hands of a servant, the feet of a servant. You've got to take on the whole anatomy of a servant. You may have the heart of a servant, but you need to develop the eyes of a servant. That means you've got the heart to serve, and anything pastor asks you to do, you'll do. But how come you don't see that piece of paper that needs to get picked up? You need some eyes. If he said, would you mind picking up? Oh, no problem, Pastor, I'll do that. And that's a great heart, but you need some eyes of a servant. Come on. Come on, we need some ears of a servant. In other words, we need the full anatomy of a servant. I've got to think like, how could I serve in this situation? We should get to a point where we're not always having to be directed into service. Now we're looking for an opportunity to serve. Because I've taken upon myself the form of a servant. I've taken the anatomy onto myself. I'm going to tell you something. He wouldn't mind me telling you. If he was right here, he'd say you could use the example. Justin, I'm going to use an example. Man, he was just, we were having a convention. And during this convention, he has a bunch of friends from Washington. All these Spanish guys started coming up for this convention, and we had a great time. And they did you know, special singing. And, they, he, and, and at the end of the convention, we have fellowship, and we're feeding everybody. And the, and he's there, and I'm just meeting with the pastors, and we're all enjoying ourselves. Everybody does five things in the church. 
you sing, but you cook, and then you serve, and everybody does wears all different hats. And Justin plays drums. And I'm walking around, and I noticed he was at the table with all of his friends. And they're having a great time. But I, you know, and I'm with pastors now that it gets late. It's near midnight. Everybody's, you know, gone. And there's my mom cleaning up. And there's my dad. And he's collecting garbage and all. And I said to my dad, I said, well, where's Justin? He said, I don't know. I think he went out into Hershey with his friends. He was showing them all Hershey. I said, show him Hershey. I said, well, why didn't you tell him that? shouldn't be doing this. Well, you know, he said, I mean, if he wanted to go with his friends, if he didn't volunteer, I said, Dad, I said, that's not training him. You, you got to train. So I said, all right, no problem. So Sunday morning comes, that's Saturday. Sunday morning comes, he's like flying high with how the night was. He comes in my office, I'm sitting there, and he said, I said what a night. We had a great night. Yeah, it's a great I said, I want to read something to you. So he said, he's all excited. He's sitting down. And I read the parable of the unprofitable servant. Now, do you know the probably Jesus said, which one of you having a servant who after he works all day in the field comes and sits down and would have and then would be served? For I say unto you, truly, he would be an unprofitable servant for he did that which was required. So I'm reading all this and he's sitting right there and I read this and Jesus called him unprofitable servant. I said, look, I just want you to know you were completely unprofitable in the servant. And it was like all the blood I could see him. I said, all you did was play drums. Everybody else did like five things. Dad, is, grandpa, is collecting all the garbage, and you're enjoying yourself in Hershey. You could always enjoy yourself with your friends. You were just an unprofitable servant. Now, I'm going to tell you what he did, and the reason why he's excelling in God. Tell you what, what, he, what he did. He looked right at me, pointed at me, he goes, that will never happen again. I said, you know, I didn't think so. We went up and we just walked away. <laughs> just like that. Not, well, you know. He said, that will never happen again. And he's been, in a, profitable, he's been a profitable servant ever since then. <laughs> Man, he sees garbage. He's taking things out. It's just unbelievable. But what I'm saying is, we do that too. What, what's required, we got to take this mind. Now, go to the next verse. Verse 8. And Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death. Right? Continue reading. Okay, so here's Jesus. Became a man. How many know if he became a king as a man, that still would have been a major step down because of where he was, equal with God? Was God. But then, even as a man, he took upon himself the form of a what? A slave. Bondservant. A slave. And then became obedient unto what? Down, 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 down. Was in the grave for how long? Three days. Let's continue to read. The death of the cross. Here's the cross. Next verse. Verse 9. Are you okay? Therefore, God also hath what? Here's the throne. How did he get to this place of having ultimate authority now by going down, down, servant, down, dying to his, own, his flesh, dying? 
And as he embraced this downward road, it automatically led, led to a place of exaltation. So I said, wow, that's something. Yeah, but here's how the verse starts. Let this mind be in you. Well, I've got this calling up here. All right, you want to get there? Go down. Yeah, but God's called me to be the grand apostle of the United States. Well, you better take upon yourself to form a slave. And there's going to be a whole lot of dying to yourself. And when you're willing to travel this road, God is going to work in your life to bring you up this road. Humble yourself under the mighty what? Hands. Oh, yeah, I'm under the hand of God. What about when that hand's your father? What about when that hand's your pastor? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Seems to me i got five fingers. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And if I will humble myself under that authority, He will exalt me in due time. Let this mind be in you. Okay, we need a five-minute potty break. Or ten minutes. Five? Five minutes. This all right? Praise the Lord. Amen.